Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the subdivision of the let me tell you something corporate behemoth of podcasting about pro wrestling. In this series, your co-host Lorcan Mullen and your other co-host Simon Cross take it in turns to pick a match from the wide world and history of pro wrestling to discuss, debate and dissect to the delirious listeners and I don't mean the Ring of Honor Booker. Simon, it was your pick this week. What are we talking about today? We're talking about an all-Japan women's match, 1990, between Aja Kong and Bull Nakano. Two absolute behemoths of the industry, slapping the ever-living piss out of each other. Oh, and by the way, it's in a steel cage. And they have more than steel cage equipment to hurt the other one with. So two things that come to mind about this. One was that I was just out of curiosity. Like, I've been off work for a week. And just in the background, whilst I've been doing other errands, I've just had early SummerSlam events on. And one of the ones I watched was SummerSlam 90, which was main evented by the Ultimate Warrior against Ravishing Rick Rude. And three months after that match you're having this as an equivalent steel cage match in all Japan women. The differences are so vivid and so distinct, it's almost hard to believe that they fall under the same umbrella of pro wrestling in many ways. (laughs) And there was also face-painted wrestlers in both of them. But the other thing I wanted to point out was that when we talked about so many of the Joshi matches that we covered during the Melt to Five Star project... We were usually including figures like Manami Toyota, other other ones along those lines that were small, smaller, high flyers. The dynamic very often, all the way back to the old days of the Crush Gals, was that you would have goody smaller wrestlers. It'd be a David and Goliath match where the villains would be larger characters, and we had several Manami Toyota Aja Kong matches. And this is the first time that I can recall us covering a Joshi match. Outside of the interpromotional tag team matches that we had, where it was like what, like a bigger wrestler and a smaller wrestler on both sides, where you have two monsters colliding. You know, this is a kaiju battle in many ways. And it is the younger upstart trying to dethrone the ace of the division, essentially, in Aja Kong trying to dethrone Bull Nakano. And I will say that the match that this reminded me of the most, as far as a cage match goes, is what I often cite as my favourite cage match in the Starcade I Quit match between Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard. Do you see where I'm coming from with that comparison? In that it's like two people been driven to like this point where where like they have to be locked in this cage just to like get everything out of their system clash into each other just completely like annihilate each other within the confines of a cage and the cage isn't so much to keep them in it's to keep the crowd safe and also just that sense of losing meaning so much more to them in this match that there's so much more on the line and so that there's a desperation to it, to the point that they're not even interested in trying to have a facsimile of a wrestling match. They are just <laughs> constantly trying 
to hurt one. It's a scrap. It's just a wild brawl. And not even in like a Terry Funk kind of brawl in that. It's not cartoony wild. Well, it's it's not cartoony wild, but it, it goes beyond the bound. It's funny. Another thing you could almost say, it's like it's it's almost as if they watched the Magnum TA Tully Blanchard match and wanted to top it. In the same way that Mick Foley watched the Shawn Michaels Undertaker Hell in a Cell and wanted to top it. And that the only <laughs> way to top it was to go for an even bigger version of what they did and do it earlier on in the match. Because Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard builds up to the point that nothing's going to make them submit until literal physical mutilation is starting to happen in that Tully Blanchard gets a wooden chair, is able to turn one of the legs into a spike and tries to ram it into Magnum TA's yeah. head or his eye. Magnum's able to escape, gets the spike himself, and digs it into Tully Blanchard's eye or into his head, forcing Blanchard to submit, although he forever says, I never said I quit, which he didn't. So <laughs> there's always like a technicality within there. Whereas within this, within like the first five minutes of this match, they're stabbing each other with a scissors. Yeah. Oh, it's, that bit. It's unpleasant to watch in many ways for me, I found. It was more upsetting than the exploding barbed wire time bomb death match that we watched last week. It is just stabbing. It's not like... Yeah. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, yeah. You can't disguise what they're doing, can you really? No. And the issue I have with it as well is that it... It's one of the things I have with weapons in wrestling. I feel like the rule should be... Unless you're using this weapon with its absolute maximum force, then you shouldn't really implement it as a weapon within a wrestling match. And that's why I've always had issues with Triple H's sledgehammer. And they're using the scissors in this match to get at each other's arms and and legs for the most part. I don't think they even jab it, and maybe sometimes jab it into their face. But it's like it's it's a minimised, it's a, it's a lesser use of it. And I feel like if you hate someone to the point that you're bringing scissors into the equation, you might as well just use them to their full effect. The devil's advocate in me would argue maybe they're doing it to like weaken the arm, while in Kong's case, for the back fist. Like, I'm not going to get back fist as strong if there's blood leaking out of the arm that's doing it. Uh, Aja Kong essentially back fisted herself into exhaustion at the start of this match. <laughs> I've got no other choice than to make this comparison. You know when, like, you play someone at Street Fighter who's really, really, really new with it, and they mm. find one kick that does some damage, and they're like, "Right, I'll, I'll just use this kick." It really did feel like that. But on the other hand, I know like how famed her back fist is, so she's gonna like you know swing big in this match where she's like despises this woman. So uh, it's it's fiddly, but. This feels like the build-up and the culmination to... The, the, you can't deny that there's a sense of hatred and a blood feud and every, and both of them needing to throw everything at each other and then even more to win it. And they do find a way to have the most spectacular spot be the one that finishes the match. Yeah. And because they're doing this chaotic, crazy thing... I mean, I can't lie. That's why I love the Magnum TA... Tully Blanchard match so much because they just throw out every convention of wrestling out the window almost and just have it be this is what two people who hate each other being stuck in a cage together might actually be like yeah who like who work out and know how to like scrap yeah 
there's not going to be many drop downs and Irish whips and the like. I mean, there might have been. I can't remember the match that thoroughly. But the key thing with this is that they are throwing everything at each other and that their teammates are throwing everything at them. One of the things I also found interesting as well in the, the weaponry that was used, Asha Kong dominates at the start and I think she brings in the scissors. I'm not 100% sure, but I think she does. She She's just beating the shit out of Nakano from the start, essentially. She attacks her as she's entering the ring. And even, like, the lights go out at the start of the match a couple of times, and they have to find a spotlight. And one of the things I appreciate, again, is the sense that they're just fighting and fighting and fighting, is that they never stop. When the lights come back on, you can see that they've just been doing what they've been doing. They wouldn't... The, the hatred so much, they don't even notice the the technical difficulties that they're experiencing. And they're not doing what some might do, you know, like when the crowd's being a bit anxious or whatever, that they'll be instructed to do a chin lock or a rest yeah. of some description to get it out of their system. They're just like, nope, we're ignoring everything around us except for how can I beat this person in front of me? Yeah. Except for my young lion who's like just been to home base and is just chucking everything into the ring that they can get their hands on. Yes, there was a lot of chaotic outside interference throughout. One thing I did like about the way it was shot, actually, like, you, you saw the chaos, but the chaos never, like, superseded the action in the ring. Like, there's various bits, especially towards the end of the match, where you see the two squadrons brawling. I think it's like a two-on-one handicap in, like, Nakano's favour with her. It's side. hard to comprehend who's there and who's not. There. Yeah. It, like, the, the only person that you recognise is Medusa. Yeah. Like, it's... You can see that there's not just putting on a show for the sake of it. They're they're actively engaging in like proper carnage, but it still doesn't pull from. Well, these two women stabbing each other, hitting each other with like mm. one of the longest nunchucks I've ever seen. Unless it's not a nunchuck, <laughs> and I, I my knowledge of Japanese weaponry fails me there, and it's like a got a different name to it. But oh boy, that that gets a lot a lot of usage in this match. One of the things that I enjoyed as well was when Nakano finally got a weapon as an equaliser against Aja Kong, it felt it seemed like it was part of the actual cage structure itself, like it was a holding bar. Yeah. It was an awkward shape as well, so sometimes she'd just be hitting her with it and it it would flail about and it'd be hard to get the full hit. And at other times she'd be taking the butt of it and jabbing it into the leg of her opponent yeah. and, and Aja Kong vi- uh, likewise. The only other time I can remember someone using the butt of a weapon to jab it in was when we had those sheep herder fantastics. Oh, with the flagpoles. With the flagpoles. Yeah. Again, because it's about maximising pain, and in that one, it's also because it's an escape the cage is the rule of the match. Mm. So there's also logic in going after the legs. But what I did like was it seemed like at various points they were doing, like, taking apart parts of the cage, and I was like, I would love to see a steel cage match where eventually the steel cage is down because it's been utilized and beat and broken and smashed about like they've taken apart the cage during the course of the match to destroy their opponents there's two examples in my head both wwe one's a hell in the cell so it doesn't really count yeah. but when uh, vince used the pickup truck to like pull the wall off and I've got in my head the barbed wire cage match between jbl and big show where i think they use bolt cutters to like um get rid of some of the barbed wire to allow JBL to escape. Well, I remember JBL won that match because Big Show choke slammed him through the ring, and then as he was trying to leave, JBL crawled from underneath the ring, so he was already out, technically, ah. when he won that. But they might have tried to cut 
the cage as well. But I mean it more just in the, the, the sense of, as part of the brutality, like they're, they're looking for ways to hurt their opponents, and so they just use the cage to their advantage yeah. until there's no more cage left to use. Like, you'd have that a few times in the Hell in a Cell match in that they get whipped into a, a side of the cage and that would bring it down, but that would more often than not be the reason to set up them going onto the, the ceiling of the cage or, or what <clears throat> have you. Which seems very formulaic at this point now, but that's what happens when you have so yeah, many. Well, that is one thing I will say about this match. It is not formulaic. In many ways, it also reminded me of the chaos of the NWA era War Games matches. But I've already said myself, I think the lack of a central focus in those matches have always been things that have bothered me. Yeah. Uh, I don't mind the chaos and the anarchy, but there can still be a structure and a sense of what you should be focusing on. Are there moments when. Those the like faction members brawling on the outside is a distraction to at least to the people watching the match in the crowd to what we should be watching, which is going on in the ring. There should mm. always be like a focal point. I feel like in most of these matches, yeah. And the WWE really did do that with their War Games matches, to, but to the point of overproduction. So there's some sort of middle point between both ends of the spectrum that probably makes the perfect War Games match for me. And a more perfect version of this steel cage match, I suppose. Because I was bothered by the... Pre- I mean, we, we always talked about how one of our problems with Joshi as well was finisher spam and oh, s- mm. millions and millions of moves leading to kickouts. And in, um, like I said, Aja Kong's spinning back fist, I think she does about 20 in the first minutes or two of this. Yeah, it's, it's... Considering, obviously, you know, the recent run of Brock Lesnar, and I remember watching that, uh, John Cena match going bloody hell like this is beyond that this is this is more excessive than that Cena match in my opinion well I think it worked in the John Cena match because that was all about him overwhelming John and just beating him up and beating him up and beating him up until he felt like finishing the match yeah whereas with this match it was like no, that that's not going to keep Bull Nakano down and every time they go to climb out of the ring there isn't even much of like a delayed tension like the great Bret Hart Owen Hart match which really did look yeah. at every aspect and avenue of the escape rules and truly focusing the match around that rule I think as well like from a personal perspective knowing how especially in her matches with Manami Toyota like how sparing I, I seem to remember the spinning back fist being at that in those matches compared to this it, that really like jarred what Adger was doing a bit more in my brain in the, in the opening section. The other thing that I've always noticed about Azure Kong is she's got quite an awkward gait in her walking and everything. She doesn't actually move very fluidly like a lot of wrestlers do, you know, great athletes. Like maybe yeah. she's not that great an athlete. Like when she does the spinning back fish, she doesn't necessarily know where it's going to end up. Well, she can move a bit awkwardly, like little shuffle steps here and there. She, yeah. she plays her character well. But as an all-around wrestler performer, I've always preferred Bull Nakano. If you hadn't picked this one, I would have been very tempted for my next match because I would have been able to use a WWE pick to go with Bull Nakano against the Lundra Blaze, which is my introduction to the Bull Nakano character in the 94 and 95 matches she was having with the Lundra Blaze for the women's title. Oh, okay. Because... Medusa slash Alundra Blaze, whatever, I can't remember what her real name is, was a woman clearly 20 years ahead of her time. Yeah. If she were in her prime now, she'd be one of the top stars in all of wrestling. She had the athletic ability and ambition 
that could not be met by the US scene and could not make her a star outside of Japan until she was able to get a bit of a run with the WWE, but they never had anyone to put her up against. At the time, they kind of blew me away. All these moves and things that Paul Nakano was doing, like the Scorpion Cross move kind of blew my mind, that uh, Paige ended up using. And a lot of res- women wrestlers cite Paul Nakano as an inspiration. I think um, Beth Phoenix wore a Paul Nakano shirt at Evolution. She did, yes, she did. So I wouldn't be surprised if they put Nakano in the Hall of Fame at some point as well. Why if this match... I mean, we've talked about a lot the discomfort we experienced during the scissors spot. Because it's just stabbing. Yeah. At the end of the day. I don't like stabbing in my wrestling. That aside, though, like all the other weapon shots, there were a lot of weapon shots. That, that fake little... It's like a... that. It's a weird bin thing that's thrown over. It's like a waste paper bin, but metal. That gets crumpled within seconds. Yeah, and Aja Kong is quite reluctant to sell it at the start of it. I legit think Bull swung that hard as she could at, at um, Aja Kong, and Aja Kong legit didn't feel it the first couple of times. I always wonder as well, there are moments where they seem to awkwardly fall. There's one time when she seems to be going for a power drive and falls forward on her knees. In general, it's an awkward match, and is the awkward on purpose, or are they genuinely... Is, again, is it like Azurkong can be quite an awkward mover in the ring, I think? And is that them trying to work around it? Well, to paraphrase uh, Grandpa Simpson, a little from column A, a little from column B. It's a spectacle. It's crazy. I don't know if I can say I enjoyed it or not. It was an experience. Dave Meltzer, I think, gave it four and three quarter stars. A lot of people rate it as maybe... Maybe the best cage match in all time. Some people, and I can understand again because I because I feel like I'm going contrary against all the things that I love again about Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard. I mean that involves a stabbing as well. But my point is that it builds towards the stab right at the end. And the stabbing isn't in like end of Act One. Yeah, the stab is the crescendo. It's not just a gross out spot. The crescendo of this match is good with Bull Nakano jumping off the top of the cage. Yeah. Hitting a leg drop and immediately getting back up and climbing out of the cage. <laughs> but the climbs are always like, they don't really build up the tension for it. One goes to climb, the other one just gets up immediately, regardless of what's happened to them. See, now, the other big uh, top of cage leg drop that seared into my brain, mainly because of how many times I watched the VHS, was uh, Hardy Edge 2005 Unforgiven. And... A, he doesn't sp- spring straight back up. I think he just like manages to drape himself over and pin him. And B, Edge does this like weird spasm cell thing as they put like a neck brace on him. That just looks so much like more authentic than what what happens here. Well, I don't know. I mean, she you know she gets up, so that's authentic. It's just within the rules, and it's that clear sense of you've not got much time. You got to make the most of it. Yeah. She's hit her with the super duper version of her finishing move. And it's probably only going to keep Kong down for like five seconds. So make the most of those five seconds and get yourself over the cage. Because you're probably going to have one of her rival teammates c- climbing up as well, which is what happens. Fighting her to try and get her to... <laughs> to uh, get some... well, again, what surprised me, because they're not about ramping up the tension. I guess, again, because I'm so used to the WWE produced... I guess Pat Patterson influence of, of like of building tension. So often when they do the climb spots, what they will do is have the opponent recover enough to start crawling towards the door so it becomes a race of sorts. Yeah. 
And they don't even do that. I mean, I don't think the cage door is an option in this match. It seems to be padlocked shut. Yeah. I don't recall them ever going for the door. I might be wrong there. Well, no, because the scissors were passed through, like, not through the door, through, like, a hole at one of the links in the cage. The, the tension sort of is all before we watch this, if you think about it, though, because, like, they have the pre-match interview and they, they start attacking each other there. In hindsight, that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know why they did that. But, like... I you know think, what, lads? I don't think we should do this next time. If we don't view the match as a normally structured match, and we view the whole thing from pre-match interview to conclusion as just crescendo, maybe it would flow better. But then again, I've not seen enough of, like, yeah. the build and stuff to, like... I mean, we're watching it cold, like, which is a frequent problem sometimes, which is a problem we experience sometimes with things like this. Another thing I should point out as well is I think everything seems improvised and figured out as it's going along. And it almost feels like they'll say, we'll bring in some scissors, we'll bring in a rope, and we'll bring in some chains. But how it works out, we've just got to work with it. I think it's Aja Kong's teammates throw the chains into the ring, but Nakano gets it. Yeah. And then Bull Nakano's teammates try to get it out. I don't feel, none of these spots feel very well prepared. That it is just throw in the chain and see what happens and react organically to it as you would if, if it was actually not to the teammate that you intended it for. Or you better try and get that chain out of there. Because it is things like Nakano tries an elaborate, to, tries to do an elaborate knot on Azure Kong to get her yeah. stuck. And Kong just gets out of it immediately. She didn't get her girl guide not tying badge. Well, that's for sure. She didn't sure. tie the other end to the boat. That was the big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it is so physical. And it's so intense. And everyone's going crazy in it. Everyone ringside is fighting for all their lives as well. And there's a moment where you see Medusa's face where it does seem like, what the hell have I got myself into? <laughs> this is a very dangerous work environment. I will admit this is not the fabulous Moolah, but I'm not saying I wanted the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And then, I don't know if you watched it afterwards, then it's like five minutes of everyone grabbing microphones, yelling at each other and getting into brawls. <laughs> and even Azure Kong and Bull Nakano having to break them up. <laughs> I know Nakano broke some of the fights up. I can't remember if Azure Kong did. Oh. I thought it was fascinating to see Bull Nakano as the face, I suppose, of the storyline. So she had to elicit sympathy. And she does very well. And when she's bleeding as well, that works so well with the painted on veins on her face. Too. Yeah. It's such a cool visual. And I do love Azure Kong literally looking like a punk. Like she has like punk rock on her clothes as well. She had such a cool look as well. And such a different look. I don't know. I think the chaos and the excessiveness... Like, if you were to ask me to do star ratings, it wouldn't be five. It'd probably be, like, somewhere around four for everything that's good about it, but also for everything that I, I didn't enjoy personally. It's a version of the cage match that in many ways makes more sense, but in other ways, it's, it kind of doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. In other ways as well, you know? It's a hell of... They put, they put themselves through a lot for the... For the for the sake and just thinking this happening it's just what a wide world japan is at the time you think of like the pure wrestling that's going on in all japan and new japan at this time and this is what's happening i guess in the underground of all japan women although that had a tv show at the time as well and and a couple of years later you've got what's going on in fmw as well i mean what a crazy wide world japanese wrestling was this is around time. the time that um 
the six men start slapping, don't they? Like they can getting the five stars uh, with Kawada. Well, yeah, I mean, Masawa beats Zaruta five to six months before this. Yeah. And that just starts the incredible run of all Japan. But this was during the hot period of the Joshi wrestling as well, that late 80s and then early 90s run. Although we don't see... I don't think we... Did we have any Bolacano matches in the five-star thing? I don't think we did. No. We've had uh, two no. Adgers. Maybe three Adgers. Definitely no more than three. But no Bolacanos. Well, I'm glad that we got to see some Bolacano. Hopefully we'll get to see you in more of a wrestling environment and future picks. I will do the Alundra Blaze matches, but they'll be on the back burner for the time being. But I am going to make my WWE pick. And this is something we've been talking about doing for so long. And I feel we have to. Because I don't think we've done enough matches that we don't actually love or that are highly rated. We need to talk about some matches that have deep, deep flaws within them. And where we are now in what's going to happen in the developmental territories of the WWE, I feel like we have to address it in the best way possible, in the most, not the best way possible, in the most appropriate way possible. And so I'm going for the Hell in a Cell, so we're staying within a, a, a chain link fence cage world, of Bad Blood, I think it was, 2004, where Triple H and Shawn Michaels faced off in what was their feud ender, actually. I mean, they have one more match after this on the Taboo Tuesday, but this was meant to be like the uh, the definitive end point of their feud. Yeah. After Chris Benoit beat them both at the WrestleMania and Backlash of that show. And boy, did they want to make it one epic finale. <laughs> and we'll talk about epic epicness in pro wrestling and how is this what Triple H and Shawn Michaels' vision of what pro wrestling should be actually is. And how that could be a problem going forward when it might be that they're in charge of everything. But we'll have to wait and see if that even happens now. Hmm. But until then, Simon, if people have ways of getting in touch with you, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the wanted star rating you would get on GTA if you bought out these weapons. My name is Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N that are the last two letters, but if you flip them around on the first two letters of Nakano, that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterboxing, put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. I should also illustrate that that match of the week will be at least one episode after what we'll be doing. By the looks of the word of mouth that it's getting, my guess is that next week will be another Meltzer 5-star project for the Ilya Dragunov-Volta NXT UK Championship rematch that took place on TakeOver. That's just a, an educated guess. We don't know for certain at the point of recording. And after that, we have a little bit of cross-pollination, a bit of cross-promotion going on, Simon. Mm. You will be entering another franchise within the Lorcan Mullen podcast universe, where you will be appearing in my 21st film podcast, where myself and a different guest every episode discuss a movie that's 21 years old. And to keep it within house, we're going to be talking about the wrestling comedy caper starring soon-to-be WCW champion David Arquette <laughs> that is ready to rumble. 
And as a follow-up to that, we're going to do the first of what I guess maybe we'll call LMTYS at the movies, where we'll talk about movies or TV shows that depict pro wrestling, and we can talk about how it looks, how wrestling is presented, and so on and so forth. Something I've always wanted to do. So this will be the first one, and it will be to the spiritual sequel to Ready to Rumble, which will be You Cannot Kill David Arquette. So, after that's done, and what's probably the five-star match, and if there are no other five-star matches after that, then we will discuss Triple H against Shawn Michaels of Bad Blood. Are you looking forward to all of this, Simon? A lot of work to do. Oh, baby. A lot of content. The the Shawn Michaels-Triple H match might feel longer than the movie. <laughs> but until then, there is nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.